All right, friends, welcome back. Uh, joining us, thank you for another week as we continue to make our way through First Timothy. Uh, we are in the fourth chapter, uh, picking up today in verse, what do we have, verse 6 here, um, as Paul continues to give instruction to Timothy. So let me read a little bit of this, and then we will uh, have some conversation about it. If you put these instructions before the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound teaching that you have followed. Uh, let's stop there, Michael. We look at the positive, then we'll check the negative. But um, so Paul's encouragement to Timothy, he's been giving him some advice. He's been giving him some direction. And he now says, if you can put these instructions, put these things that I've told you, share them with the brothers and sisters. In the Greek, the word is brothers. So uh, the Bible I'm using adds sisters because it's clear that it is in the context of the whole community. You will be a good servant. In other words, you will fulfill your leadership role faithfully. You will be a good servant of Christ, nourished on the words of the faith and the sound teaching that you have followed. I, I think this is a really great phrase, Michael, the idea that we're nourished in our faith, both by the words of faith, which we might say would be scripture or the words of mentors, and the sound teaching that, that sort of we stand in line uh, with people who have tried to understand the faith and pass it down to us, and that both of these aspects make it more likely for us to be good servants. In in other words, both of these set for us a pathway toward being faithful. Yeah, I think that this is incredibly helpful in beginning to put some context here into what we've seen before. Uh, to make that point here, uh, I just want to uh, bring up and show you uh, for what we had uh, just yesterday, this moment here where we were talking about that hypocrisy of liars, those whose consciences are seared with a hot iron, that this is an example of those false teachers, those uh, people who have it the wrong way. And today, as we turn our attention now to the positive example, what it means to be a good minister, someone who uh, is not caught up in hypocrisy, whose conscience is actually sound, that this is the person who is going to share these words with the people of faith. Clint, notice how communal that is, how transparent that is, how open this is. While this letter is clearly being written to Timothy, it is explicit here in this section that this should be shared with the entire body that is gathered, that good leadership looks like passing along the kind of training that has come. In our own tradition, the Presbyterian tradition, pastors have gone by lots of names over the course of the years. One of the ones that has been suggested in recent times has been teaching elder, and I find that a helpful term. I think it, it fits in a context like this where the role of the leader of a community of faith is to teach and equip every member of that community in faith uh, so that they too can grow in faith and discipleship. And I think that is a simple uh, kind of truth, but embodied in words like this, that fundamentally sound teaching is not just to be received by church leadership, but to be passed on to the whole body, because fundamentally that's how a healthy and strong church community will grow is that being handed from one generation to the next. Yeah, I, I think Paul does us a real service here in the idea that we not only have 
the words of faith. We not only inherit teaching, but it takes teaching to follow it, sound teaching. There is all kinds of unsound teaching. There is unsound teaching from the words of faith. But in combination, those two work together to help us serve Jesus Christ in a faithful way, that we are nourished on them. We get sustenance. We grow from the words of faith and the sound teaching regarding that you have followed. That would be the other part to follow. And then we move into a a kind of negative. Some of what we saw yesterday have nothing to do with profane myths and old wives' tales. Train yourself in godliness. For while physical training is of some value, godliness is valuable in every way, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. So, uh, you know, this is, we've seen this, we saw this early in the book, we saw this a little bit even yesterday, this kind of consistent theme, don't chase rabbit trails, profane myths, old wives' tales, stay away from that stuff. Uh, it'd be, it would be fascinating if Paul were writing this letter today, what he might tell us to stay away from. Uh, YouTube videos and social media unprofitable conversations. I, I don't know what the equivalent would be, but his his point here is you know what builds the faith, scripture and sound teaching. So stay away from what isn't that. Stay away from those things that take you the wrong direction and train yourself. The, the word train it brings to mind the idea of repetition of consistency, of discipline. If you've ever applied yourself to an exercise program, a diet program, you know that those are the three keys. You have to do it regularly. It has to be consistent. You have to have discipline, and it it has to be work. It has to be effective. And so Paul says, train yourself in godliness. And the, the Church in Ephesus is well acquainted with kind of physical games and activities that happens there. And so the physical training is something they probably celebrate culturally. And he says, yeah, that, that's good. There's nothing wrong with that. But godly training is better for all of your life. It, it is overarching. It's not just good for your body. It's good for everything. And I, again, I think, Michael, that these are these are really helpful words. I, I think these are the kind of words, you know, that for me, this is the kind of verse you could cut out or write on a note and put it in your car or on your Bible or on your front door. You know, train yourself in godliness, which is a value for your whole life. I, those are really good words to try and live by. Okay, so uh, Clint, I... Uh, I apologize for this in advance uh, because <laughs> this may at first glance seem like an extreme diversion, but I think there is a lesson to be had here if we look at verse 8 and the importance of taking a moment to get out of our own shoes in the appreciation of what we're being taught in Scripture. Let me explain what I mean by that. So some of you know that I grew up in a Christian school very small school, uh, but uh, all of our teachers were Christian, and the curriculum was. And so uh, we got after our PE teacher, our physical education teacher, often because there was this talk about, well, we need to you know, be physically fit because that helps build up the temple that God gave us. We literally used 
<laughs> verse 8. Like, we opened the Bible, brought it to PE class, and showed, you know, physical training is of some value, but godliness is valuable in every way. And we tried to make the case as, uh, you know, smart aleck high schoolers that we shouldn't need to do You PE. need to go out and run a mile. No, no. That what you need was, to be what, Christian. What was the good of running a mile when we could be practicing faith? Now, I that's it, it's near the level of sheer stupidity. But the point I want to make here is this, that to a kid looking at this text, it could be used in defense of laziness. And and we, you know, we're joking, but there was a sense in which I think that was our ability at that stage in our life to actually interpret and understand scripture. But if we as adults come to the text and we recognize, because we've done a little bit of work on the front end, that there may be some asceticism in the Ephesian community, or in other words, there may be some folks there who are suspicious of what you can and can't do with your body, that Paul's already gotten after uh, some people for things like maybe they were saying you can't get married. That's a practice you shouldn't do, that in the midst of a place where there's real debate about where the line between what you eat and what you do should be and what you should wear should be, all these kinds of things, that here we're told that it's fundamentally good to be in the practice of physical training. That's not a bad thing, but true godly character should be the source and font of our Christian discipleship. You see how that radically transforms a text. It's just a little bit of work to find yourself back into that sort of what is what is the nature of this conversation and asking some of those fundamental questions about why the critiques that are being offered. If you're willing to answer some of those, Clint, it has a way of transforming the scripture. I would even say making it come alive. And then from that vantage, we can begin to see how it speaks directly to our present day lives. So silly example, but I think when you come to a biblical text, you can be surprised often how different the interpretations that folks come up with are. And I think that that's a helpful beginning for a corrective to that. And keep in mind the backdrop. What is Paul arguing against? What did we start the letter with? That there are these people in this church community in Ephesus who believe they have this special revelation. They believe they've been given this this gift of knowledge that allows them to impart spiritual wisdom on others that to Paul sounds very different than the gospel. And what is he saying as the corrective? That, that just like everything else, the spiritual life is not magical. It, it is a daily toil, like exercise, like diet, like work. It is a thing that we have to apply ourselves to. It's not waving a wand and all of a sudden we fathom all the mysteries of of spiritual life. It it is an effort to be trained in godliness, to nourish ourselves with the words of faith, to embody and live out sound teaching, to seek out sound teaching and to listen to it. And and I appreciate this you know, having sort of come on the other side, where I, I I would have I would have wanted all my classes to just be gym. Right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. so but but I I appreciate about this sort of metaphor that Paul uses that idea that 
that exercise or that anything we aspire to do and do well is going to take some work. It is not the result of some divine moment of understanding. It is throwing yourself against it over and over and over again and making progress, which is sometimes slow, but important. And I, and I appreciate that Paul gives us that perspective. Um, and then he, you know, he follows that up. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance. I'm, you know, that's the truth that godliness has benefit for all areas of life. That's the truth. And then he finishes here, verse 10, for to this end, and, and to my point here, we repeat the language for to this end, we toil and struggle because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So let, let's take the, um, let's just take the front end of that since that's the theme we're on, toil and struggle. Now, it, these are not words that n- most people bring to mind when you think about the faith. If you right. say, def- you know, define the Christian faith, tell me about the Christian faith, you're not going to tell a non-believer, well, we toil and struggle. You're You're going to, but from the inside, we know that that's part of the journey, and I, I appreciate that about Paul. Because, And why do we toil and struggle? Because we have our hope set on the living God. That's why. Our hope guides us in the struggle. Our hope guides us in the work. And whatever work we do, it is to the end of the hope we've been given in Jesus Christ. I, you know, Paul has this ability to get an entire sermon— shoved into one sentence, and and I would say this is a good example of it. Uh, Clint, we in the Protestant Reformed tradition specifically uh, have spent a lot of time emphasizing salvation is by grace alone, not by works. You do not get into the door because of something you have done or achieved or bring with you. The temptation of that may be to suggest that there is never any work, that there's never any toil or never any struggle because it's all been done on our behalf. The reality is anyone who's been Christian knows that because we are human, because we're fallible, because we have received grace, we now stand in front of the mountain that is the reality of our brokenness. And to be Christian alone is difficult work. To be Christian within our own mind, Jesus himself says, you know, uh, so you say you haven't committed adultery. Show me the person who hasn't looked upon a woman lustfully. When Jesus says, you know, even within our own conscious thoughts, we are incapable of restraining ourselves. Well, all the same, even even more so, that's true in Christian community. When you start adding other people into the mix with different understandings and life experiences and interpretations, and it requires patience and diligence and generosity and, uh, you know, all of these sort of spiritual gifts that are required for living as one body in Christ, it's, it is therefore unnecessary. I mean, there's no other way to live out the faith than to do so in the midst of struggle, because we are going to struggle with ourselves. We're going to struggle with others. And that's not a sign of godlessness. That's a sign of faithfulness. That's a sign of us taking the good news seriously and and desiring uh, wholeheartedly to become disciples whose character matches our belief. And that, for anyone who has set themselves to the task, they know is a 
very brutally difficult process, but it's a beautiful process. It's not one where we achieve salvation or sanctification to our own ends, but rather it's a process by which we, by taking a step of faith every day, find God's strength and mercy to be sufficient. And if we can remember that today, and then we can put our faith and hope in the God who continues to carry us into tomorrow— that is the fulfillment of the faith that we see proclaimed here. Yeah, and and again, that the end of that, the goal in that is godliness, that that is ultimately what we're pursuing and what we struggle with is to embody a, a Christ-likeness in our life. And the thing that gets us there is God's Word and sound teaching. I uh, just want to say, Michael, a, a word about this last part of this passage. Um, this is one of those verses that has kind of led to a lot of head scratching. Nobody knows exactly what to make of this. Paul says a, a few things that are sort of like this in other places, but by and large, this is a, a, a kind of lone voice, and some have not known exactly what to make of it. So this line, who is the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, um, nobody's exactly sure what to do with that, and I don't know that we have any answers. Just want to point out that it is there, that it has caused some discussion. Um, if if you were with us in our Roman study, you know how much emphasis Paul put on belief, but you also know how much emphasis Paul put on the the work of Christ on our behalf and how those two things work in relation to one another um, is a question that continues to generate discussion in the community of faith. And so here, there is a very interesting verse that is sort of out of step with where we have generally been. And again, we, we've told you a many, many times, be very, very careful taking one part of one verse and running with it as a theology. But I do want to point out that this is here. It's difficult to interpret. It's difficult to understand. And it's not entirely clear why uh, the author says it in the way that it's written here. Yeah, maybe one thing to just contribute to that. Uh, I pulled up chapter 2, verse 1 here, just notice um, in this section, specifically, once you get down to verse 4, that God desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We already have in this letter, this is just two chapters previous, this kind of language of, of God's whole perspective, which is for everyone, a, a kind of desire uh, to, to bring wholeness to every person. And once again, uh, to Clint's point, um, resolving that theologically has not been done uh, in a comprehensive way up to this point, so we're surely not going to accomplish it in the next uh, minute and 30 seconds. But it is to say that I do think if you want to extrapolate from a text like this into a larger arc of Scripture, uh, all the way back in Genesis, if you joined us for that study, from the very beginning of the Bible, it's been clear that God's covenantal promise was intended for all, that God has always had a cosmic scope uh, in this idea of salvation and how that gets worked out in salvific history. That, that's a matter for theologians and biblical scholars to address. From our vantage as people living on the ground seeking to be faithful, that means that every person we encounter 
whether we call them friend or enemy, is someone who God desires for the salvific message to break through. And our prayer and our work should always be to that end, even in the face of adversity. Yeah, if nothing else, this is a confusing but helpful reminder that God's bent is toward bringing the world, bringing all people back to himself. Now, if, how, when that happens, those are things beyond our understanding, but it is good to be reminded that that is God's uh, intention, that is God's hope, if we can use a word like that in that context, but that that is the the will of God, is that those uh, those who are yet outside would be inside. And from there, it would break down into lots of pathways, but it's a good place to start. Uh, and for us today, it will be the place we end. So thank you for being with us for this conversation, and we look forward to having you join us tomorrow as we continue on. Thanks, everybody. 